Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. And I'm really happy that we're joined today by Valerie Mason John or Vimalasara. Dr. Valerie Mason John, also known as Vimalasara, is a public speaker and master trainer in the field of conflict transformation, leadership, and mindfulness. They're also an author, poet, and playwright. Vimalasara was featured at TEDx Renfrew Collingwood, where they gave a talk titled, We Are What We Think which outlined a course of action we can take to work on the global epidemic of bullying and has had over 300,000 hits online. Vimalasar is an accredited life coach and addictions coach. They're also one of the founding facilitators of Dr. Gabor Maté's Compassionate Inquiry course. They're trained in both compassionate inquiry and internal family systems and work as a mindfulness coach to help liberate people from the prison of their minds. Vimalasara is also ordained into the Tri Ratna community and has been practicing Buddhism for over 30 years. They're the co-founder of Eight Step Recovery, an alternative to the 12-step program for addiction, and also the co-founder of the accredited program Mindfulness-Based Addiction Recovery, which is a cousin of mindfulness-based relapse prevention. Vimalasara is an award-winning author and editor of 10 books, including Eight-Step Recovery and Detox Your Heart. This year, their book, I Am Still Your Negro, an homage to James Baldwin, was shortlisted for both the Dorothy Livesay and Gerald Lampert Awards. Today, Vimalasara is with Banyan Books in conversation about the release of a book for which they are the editor and a contributing writer. The book is titled African Wisdom, New Voices Talk Black Liberation, Buddhism, and Beyond. A bit about the book. It's a spiritual, political, and interdisciplinary anthology of wisdom stories from black liberation leaders and teachers. African Wisdom represents an intersectional, cross-pollinated exploration of black life, past, present, and future collection of 34 essays written by an eclectic and inspirational group of black thought leaders and teachers reflects on the unique and multi-layered experience of being black in the world today. If you'd like to learn more about today's guests, please visit their website. It's Valerie Mason-John, 
www.vanyancommunity.com. Vanyan community, please join me in a warm, warm welcome for Vimalasara. Vimalasara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, just that long introduction. And I'm really um, looking forward to this evening. I just want to say to our listeners that I really know that Ross has read the book from back to back. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to a great conversation. And I just also want to say that the contributors um, are from Canada, the UK and the US. And that was very important for me because I straddle those three countries. Yeah, thank you. And it's, it's a fantastic book. And for me, it was really illuminating and, and rich to, to dive into um, all of these different perspectives. Um, so I'm, I'm encouraging everyone to please get a copy of this book and check it out. Now, maybe you can fill us in on, on what happened in 2019 at, at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California. Before uh, yeah, before I do that, I wanted to, we spoke about that playing because yes the the um what's called the negro national anthem and i thought it would be um really great to to play that first to begin that so i i just wanted to say that uh the negro national anthem is called lift every voice and it was written by james weldon johnson and his brother in 1899 put it to music so i'm just gonna play that now let me just see, so hopefully. Okay.
beautiful thank you thank you so um you were asking me to to speak about the event that um brought this seed of this book into to being yeah. yes um 2019 it was I, the the synchronicity of that happening and then the the pandemic happening soon after and i'll i'll say why it's um so in 2019 it would be the the second the, the second gathering the very first gathering of african descent dharma teachers had happened a couple of years before i couldn't actually go to that i was um busy traveling but it was a much smaller group and out of that it was decided let's try and bring at least a hundred african descent dharma teachers together uh, at spirit rock and what it meant was that none of us none of us had to pay for our travel none of us had to even pay to stay at spirit rock all the money was raised and we were greeted by alice walker um and so we had time with alice walker at the the beginning of um at, at the beginning of the retreat and then at the end of the retreat we had angela davis and jan willis and what actually happened at the end of the retreat uh the last three days we opened it up to african descent um practitioners and so you know from a from 100 we went to perhaps 300 400 people at spirit rock so it was an amazing event and the event was amazing is because it brought collaborations together and it brought uh teachers who had been working in silos hadn't had that connection teachers who are working like myself in the context of predominantly white sanghas and brought us together to to do things and so when I was there, I, there were a couple of presentations and I just thought, wow, this is so amazing. And then there was the younger voice, the younger generation saying, how can we be published? And, and I was actually in conversation with North Atlantic Press about something else. And I just thought, you know what, I'm in a position to be able to uplift these voices, uplift these new voices and let me take this to North Atlantic Press because I was so inspired by Justin Miles's piece and also uh, Seho's piece and those were the two pieces actually they, they, they that was the nexus of the um, of the anthology and uh, Seho's piece was very much looking at a 12-step approach to uh, unconscious bias it was a very, uh, yeah, a very smart way of using the 12 steps to unpack unconscious bias. And um, Justin Miles' piece was a, a very traditional Buddhist piece of devotion, of, of, of devotional acts. And then I want to say that the whole, the, the book wasn't just about um, Buddhist writers writing. I think initially I had thought about let's bring Buddhist voices together. And it's like, no, that what was very clear at this conference was that, that our Buddhist practice doesn't stay within the confinement of what traditionally is called Dharma, that our Dharma includes social justice issues. 
that our, you know, when I think of our Dharma and we think of the, the free poisons, we talk about the free poisons of Buddhism, greed, hatred, and delusion. And people like Martin Luther King uh, renamed these three poisons as militarism, poverty, and racism. And so in a way, it was very important to, to open up the aperture of what Dharma means for us as African descent practitioners. And then the reason why I say that the, that it just happening before the pandemic, because we'd all come together, we wouldn't have known each other. And so during that pandemic, we were able to come together online and actually begin to do stuff and create these sanghas online. And so some beautiful things have come out of it. And, and in fact, I'm working on a project which uh, that uh, a project of developing a BIPOC mindfulness course by BIPOC people for BIPOC people. And, you know, two of us uh, who led on that, who came up with that idea, it's much bigger than us, you know, came out of this, this gathering. And so, and so there was just so much wisdom in that gathering of bringing us together. And as I say, you know, we were hosted by Alice Walker and Angela Davis, which actually looks at who are some of our Dharma teachers. Yeah. That's wonderful. You know, a few things you said there reminded me uh, of a quote from the book. So I'm going to go to that. It's, it's from uh, the essay by Anouk Amy Shambrook called Coming Home to Embodied Non-Duality. And in that they write, as black people, we often grapple with additional obstacles to coming back to our true nature. The trauma of the relentless rejection of our humanity and the denial of our reality can make us feel under attack. We often lack an embodied sense of safety, making relaxation, trust, and openness feel counterintuitive. The collective history of trauma that our bodies carry, we may not trust that oneness is our true nature and birthright. So I'm wondering, because you spoke about Black and BIPOC dedicated sanghas, and I'm wondering if you can speak to the need for that and this, this felt lack of safety for many Black people that might be in predominantly white sanghas. Well, you know, one of the ways I can speak to that is, is that uh, pre-pandemic, if Black or BIPOC, or in the UK they say BAYPOC, they put the Asian in BAYPOC, mm -hmm. uh, and especially, you know, really talking about um, Af African descent, that for many of us pre-pandemic, if we wanted to go to a sangha night, we would, you know, are we going to get home safely? <laughs> you know, are we going to get there safely? Are we going to be stopped by the police? And so with the pandemic happening and everything happening online, no longer did we have to worry about, are we going to get home safely? Or, you know, is our partner going to get home safely? And that's, that is, that is a real issue. And, and what I want to say is, I mean, actually in terms of, you know, I just really want to take a moment to really um, talk to the, the, the atrocity of the gun crimes that happens in the US, yeah. And so for um, many people, it could be very difficult to be in the body, yeah. And that includes all of us. And those of us who are African descent or who, who are BIPOC, we are also on top of that singled out 
yeah, we're singled out. So yeah, on that collective trauma, we have, you know, if you're living in the US, there's that collective trauma. Oh my God, you know, will my kid be safe at school? Oh my God, you know, will we be safe going into the shopping center? And especially those of us who are African descent Latinx, it's like, I, I would say that many uh, African descent males and many Latinx or has, has Hispanic males believe that they, they won't live beyond 30. Yeah. And there's a reason why they believe they won't um, live beyond 30 because of how we are policed you know, how we're policed in the world and not just in the US. I, I grew up in the UK and um, we are policed in, in a very similar way. The only difference is, is that we just don't um, have the same access to guns and have the access to knives but, and not the same access to guns. Um, so what's really important, I think, to have BIPOC sangers or even African descent sangers or, or specifically Asian sangers, um, I think it's important is because if we go into centers like Spirit Rock or even my centers like Tree Ratna, the Dharma is very, very much packaged through a Western lens, okay? So we have, we, what, what we have to remember is, is that the Buddhism was brought to the West by Asian people. Okay, we have to remember that Buddhism wasn't brought to the West by people like Sharon as much as I love her and Jack Cornfield as much as I love him, etc. It was brought by Asian people in, in, in 1800s, okay? And those um, Buddhist temples are very, very strong and, and there are many people who uh, grow up perhaps culturally being Buddhist. And then there's a whole generation of perhaps of of Asian people who didn't grow up Buddhist and are, are looking for something and maybe don't want to go to uh, their, and I would say, um, ethnic temple. They might want something which is it's slightly different. And what they're going to get is, is it's something which is through a white Western lens. So if we are able to come together as a BIPOC community or as an African descent community, we can begin to translate the Dharma through our experience because the Dharma is, is it's, it's a living truth. You know, if you think like the Dharma in India and then it goes to Burma, look how different it is in India to Burma. Look how different the Dharma is from Burma to, to Tibet. Look how different the Dharma is from Tibet to China. It's not like the teachings are thrown out, but how people live the Dharma is very different because you experience it through your, your cultural lens. And so what's happened is here in, in the West, in, in the US, in Canada, in, in the UK, the Dharma, um, which has become popular, uh, popular, a lot of that has been packaged with white Western land and it's time we as BIPOC and BAYPOC people begin to translate the Dharma through our experiencing, through our lens and to know that, yes, that is okay. That we can, we can go into a Dharma hall and when we're talking about the Four Noble Truths, we need to include 
the suffering of actually uh, anti-Asian oppression, uh, anti-Black oppression, anti-Hispanic oppression. We need to be able to talk about that. So it's really important that we have those spaces. Thank you. Yeah, and, and one of the one of the essays in the in section one, section one is titled Reappropriating the Buddha. And the first essay by Shaka Kalpani represent or presents the historical evidence that India's first people, India's first people were black, and that Gautama Buddha himself was black. I'm just wondering if you have any any comments yourself on this point of view that that the that Buddha was was a black man. I uh, I love it. Um, I definitely, I remember friends saying, wow, you know, that's the first one that we're going to lead with. And I said, yep. And in a way, it's like, I go with, if, if I'm in the UK and I go to Buddhist centres there, the Buddha is white, okay? It's like one of the most recent um, Buddhist centers that's been built in my tradition Vadrasna the the basically the Buddha the Rupa is this white dude do you know what I mean so in a way what we do is we 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 often project our experience onto the Buddha which is why people project male onto the Buddha people project man onto the Buddha and yet when somebody becomes woke when somebody becomes awake basically all those labels that identify us as, as through our gender or our race have been destroyed, have been dismantled, and we are genderless, yeah? And yet, through our experiences, we will project male, we will project white, etc. So coming back to your, your, your question, I think um, in that chapter, it's a bit more complex as, than that, because it is actually looking... Um, at the migration of, uh, of Africans into India, which has a long history. And actually, why not? You know, many Indian people are as black as me and blacker, you know, do, are they brown? You know, why not? You know, we, we quite honestly, if, if the Buddha was a wanderer, he couldn't have been pale skinned. He would have been weather beaten. And why, you know, it's possible. Why not? You know, I mean, there are many, many um, dark skinned people in India and not all dark skinned people are of the lower caste. I think um, often because of the Barna system in, in India, that people always assume that the, the darker you are and the lower caste you will be. And often that happens. And there are very high caste dark Indians who are Brahmins. Yeah. And we know that the Buddha was from um, the Brahmin caste and was very political. I mean, again, that's what I want to say is, is that actually it's almost like uh, the Dharma expressed through the Western lens. We have to take out the politics. And yet there was always politics in, in the Dharma. Yeah, it, seem, it seems entirely plausible to me if especially like if we look at the hypothesis that everybody comes out of Africa then India would have been you know one of the early places that mm. people would have gone so there's mm. it's, it makes a lot of sense mm. 
I wanted to ask you something. I, I've heard you um, in another um, panel discussion, you described yourself as stateless indigenous. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can tell us what that means to you and, and maybe to other people of the African diaspora. Yeah, um, thank you for that, that question. You know, I, um, writing has, has been very much my, my through line and my first uh, job, it wasn't my first first, my first full-time job, I worked as an international correspondent and one of the places I lived out in was Australia for a couple of years and I covered Aboriginal deaths in custody and Aboriginal land rights. And I had the privilege to live traditionally. If you know Australia, there's these two tips and I lived right in Arnhem land where uh, only the elders had had contact with white people. And so I could only communicate with the, with the elders. And there, there were two things, there were, there, there were, I think two things, maybe three things, three things. Um, the first one, actually, I would say is, no, let me start with when they, when I met, met them. When I first came, they called me, I was a pale black person. I was, I'd never been called pale before, <laughs> but they could see that I hadn't had the sun, didn't have enough melanin in me. The, one of the questions they asked me very off the bat was, where was I indigenous to? I was, I was 25 when I went out there. Indigenous, we, you know, I, I, grown up in England I never thought about indigenous the only thing I knew was is like being told to go back go back home to where you come from that was the only thing that I knew so indigenous it, it was a new word because it, it just wasn't part of the vernacular or the vocabulary it still isn't in the UK they still struggle over BIPOC which is why they put the A in it as, as BIPOC because in England perhaps people just don't know who is in, indigenous to there so for me it set me um, on a road of discovery what did it mean to be indigenous and of course I realize I'm, I'm on slave stock I have absolutely uh, no idea where I descend from, where I, where I hail from, okay? Or I can do ancestry.com. But my people, I'm, I'm of Sierra Leonean descent. And as you know, we're, we're both in Canada. Nova Scotia has that strong history with Sierra Leone, where it sent the, the, the black loyalists, the free black loyalists back to Sierra Leone, where the, the black loyalists and the uh, the black poor, what they were called, who was sent back to Sierra Leone, established Freetown. Okay, so Freetown was developed by the slaves, by the by the by the enslaved, the free enslaved people. So I I'm from that. I, I I'm from those people. So we had we would have been taken from all over Africa, shipped out all over the world and then when we got freedom people went back there so I have so I know I'm indigenous to Africa but where am I indigenous to and so that's why I say I'm a stateless indigenous person and I think that's that's really important yeah and then I wanted to say I said there were there were three things that it was a very pivotal time for me actually um being out in Australia, living traditionally 
amongst the young well they they taught me they taught me so so much one of the things was tiger balm and um my i slept under a tree my bed my bedroom was under a tree and every day i couldn't find my little jar of tiger balm and it was after a week i realized that oh my tree is a cupboard because somebody had put it back in the same branch every time so just learning to 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 actually think out of the box and then the other piece of wisdom that i i got from that experience was i i spent a lot of time sitting around the fire it would just be one log one one log not not all these twigs and building it up as you do it was just one log that would burn for the whole night and you would sleep around it and it was always taught never look into the fire always look beyond it because it would send you crazy and for me that's a real teaching never look right into the mind always look beyond the thoughts because if you look into the mind into the thoughts they will send you crazy always remember to see beyond so yeah wow wow that's really cool now now there's a term sankofa. Can you tell us what that means? So yes, yeah, sankofa is is a term is to return to to return and bring back, and to to return and return back to the motherland and gather up what it is that um, we haven't taken. And in a way, when you think when we were when we were captured and enslaved, how could we take what we needed? <laughs> you, the only thing we could take was this body, yeah. And so the Sankofa is about the return, to, to return and to collect and gather and bring back. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I heard that term, I was struck by how important that might be to, to white people too, this idea that you know, a lot of our trauma and the reasons we've perpetuated what we have is because of our disconnection from our indigeneity. I'm wondering if you can comment, do you think this is an important, this, this idea of Sankofa, of going back and taking back, you know, a piece that we may have lost is important? I think, um, I, I think, yes, I think what's important is, is that every single one of us is indigenous to somewhere. This is, this is what we have to remember, that we are all Indigenous to somewhere. And, and for us to honour that, and if we are able to, to discover where it is that we are Indigenous to, and to have gratitude for those Indigenous cultures that still survive, you know, that's, that's just so important. For me, it's when I uh, was in Australia, my... Uh, I was just so aware how my status as a black person changed. I was no longer at the bottom. Indigenous people were at the bottom and, and the rights of those indigenous people were so important. And that's the same in Canada, again, that how my state status as a, as a black person changes and the indigenous people are at the bottom. In fact, I always say that black people are missed. You know, it's that people aren't concerned about that. But what I want to say is it's, it's the uprising of Indigenous people. I just think, wow, you know, at some point, you know, I hope the Indigenous people of Canada get their land back. And what, what would that, that mean? You know, we have um, colonizers have stolen so much, not just our land, 
stolen our languages, yeah, stolen our rituals, you know, this thing of appropriation. So much has been taken uh, away, taken away from us. So in, in answer to your question, it is really important for us to discover where we are indigenous to and to learn the wisdom of, 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 our, of our people. And we will find that actually there are many, many similarities. One of the amazing things that I had during that time of living out in Australia for those couple of years, they, they used to have this um, Pacific, uh, Pacific gathering, this Pacific conference was just amazing. People would come from all over the Pacific with their indigenous instruments. And then you would, you know, it's like, oh my God, so many things that you would think like, like Morris dancing, which is Moorish dancing, which, you know, in England, you think, oh, this is, this is, this is a white tradition, but actually that comes from the Moors and the Moors came from, from all over Africa, you know, and then these instruments that we play and you were introduced as these are Western instruments. And then you see the wisdom of these indigenous people who, who, bring these huge instruments and what what we've done in the west has just made them smaller so that we can appropriate them and keep them and keep them in our, in our pocket so in answer to your question it is really important the return and the really important for um us to connect to our indigeneity thank you I really liked your your interview with the essay you wrote. It's titled, it's not an essay, it's an interview with an African elder priestess, and her name was Mama Yah. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your experience in meeting her and what she was like. Oh, she is amazing, and it's made me think I should uh, reach out to her. One of the things I will um, remember, I met Mama Yah because um, I had the, um, I went on the, the first and only, it will be the first and only because Maladoma Sume has passed. Yeah. So I went on the, the first and only Maladoma Sume gathering of African descent people of um, ancestralization. And that's where I met Mama, Mama Yar. We shared a, a room. There was about four or five of us who shared a room and just her wisdom it was just to be in the presence of her wisdom and one of the things i always remember is with she taught she taught me what you do with spirits that's alcohol what you do with spirits you don't drink spirits because they're so strong what you do is is to you welcome the spirit you pour it on the ground and you rub it in your head yeah you know that's where you put it to put spirits inside you would just wreck the body and that was just uh, something that she really uh, taught me in terms of um calling in the ancestors and how we use the spirits and she, she brought her big bottle of i can't remember if it was whiskey or something but it wasn't to drink it was to uh, welcome the ancestors and to and to protect us from the spirits yeah and so you don't drink it you rub it in your head or you pour it on the ground and you have to as you say it's a beautiful interview and and one has to to read read that interview yeah you mentioned um 
Maladoma Somme, and he passed on back in, in December 2021. He was a good friend of Banyan Books, and we hosted him. I had the, the honor of hosting him one time. Uh, Might have been one of his last events that he did with Ben. I'm just wondering if you could comment on, on what kind of uh, man he was and the work that he did in the world. He, I mean, basically, I think for me, I reson resonate with um, Malidoma because he was he was stolen and he, he, he went to boarding school and was raised by the priest and was raised in that white context. And at some point he had to do his Sankofa and go back and to get his culture and to get his tradition and wisdom. And he did and, and then kind of shared it with the world. And actually really, you know, one of the, the things about um, Malidoma is, is that he, he shared those gifts, not just with African descent people, because as I say, we were the first um, and only ancestralization um, gathering that, that he did. But what I, what I would say about Malidoma was, is that he was uh, a very, had a lot of wisdom and just uh, was really, had had a seeing was able to see into this world through a different dimension and you know taught you to really it's there's that way of seeing where we can just see on that literal level or we, we say you know you can see on that metaphorical level but he was able to see beyond that and see into the world through um an alch alchemical lens and was able to pass his knowledge on to, to people who can continue to take it out into the world. I'm not one of those people I went on retreat, but one of the people who contributed to the book, Hosmore, is one of his elders who is continuing the work of Malidoma. And I think his books, his books have been so much solace for, for many, many people. I think in a way, what Malidoma has done for many people was really to to bring uh, African wisdom into the mainstream. Because before then, I can think the really Ben Okri, Famish Road. You know, if you think of that, I mean, I loved Ben's book, Famish Road. And that was really, I think, really quite pivotal when that came out, really, because there was no compromise of talking about African spirituality. African wisdom, but then here you had Malidoma really bringing the, the Dagra uh, practice into the West. Thank you. Your essay, When Will We Sing, Dance, Tell Our Stories, Dwell in Silence and Begin Breathing Again? There's a part that just, I, I had to share it, and it's a little bit of a long quote, but I'm just hoping it'll open a doorway to something we can discuss. You write, the transatlantic theft of African people, the Mafa African Holocaust and the Holocaust of enslavement took away our song, our dance, our stories, our silence, our breath. We couldn't even beg for our breath. Our life force lynched from the moment the white colonizer came and conducted such atrocities and genocide on the continent of Africa. And then you go on to say, in Africa, when someone is spiritually, mentally, and or physically sick, it is said that the healers will ask four questions. The four questions, this is just so beautiful. 
when did you stop singing? When did you stop dancing? When did you stop being enchanted by your own stories? When did you stop dwelling in the sweet territory of silence? And you add a fifth question. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, I'm saying, did I write that? I don't write the books. The spirit, an ancestor. I really do. I really do believe that that none of us really have copyright over this. That actually, it's ancestors moving through all of us. Yeah, and definitely that was an. I'm thinking, did I write that? No, I didn't write that. Ancestor. Um, so being that vessel for for the ancestor, and I just want to say that there there is a debate. Um, I first learned about those teachings from um, one a very close, a very good friend and colleague of mine, Carol Cano, who um, sometimes it's sourced to uh, Latin America, and I can't forgive me, I can't think of the person's name at the moment. And then when I'm when I did research onto the internet, it was like, oh, these questions are in African culture too. So and again, that thing of being a shaman and just how similar you know as as humans when we really uh well when we touch into authentic self or when we touch into that that deluded self we're, we're very similar in 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 the way that we might approach things and so for me i added the extra question as a, a dharma practitioner and because i know for me, definitely, we lose the breath. When did we stop breathing? Yeah. It's, it's like the restriction of the breath. So many people do not allow themselves to breathe, to breathe fully. And why don't they allow themselves to breathe fully? Because they learn to hold on to the breath due to trauma. And so, again, yeah. When did we stop breathing? Yeah. So for me, it was a, a, a very significant, all those questions are very significant. Yeah. Thank you. There's some really nice questions here. I just want to thank the audience so far, the people that have submitted questions. This one is from Sister Zai Zanda, who says, Yognu. I think I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yognu, I live in the Southeast on Kulin nations and migrated here from Zimbabwe. It's here that I began to think of Africans as indigenous with privilege vis-a-vis -vis Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. What does indigenous mean to you? What is the significance of quote unquote indigenous for you? And I know we covered that a little bit, but I wanted to get to this question too. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, Torres Strait, I'm feeling a bit, um, yeah, gosh. I just, one doesn't even think of Torres Strait Island when you're over here. That was one of the big griefs of moving, coming back over to the UK then when I was in the UK and just losing uh, just the, 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 the beauty of the, the Pacific. What does Indigenous mean to me? Um, well, I, you know, in, in Indigenous... It's, it's interesting because we could say that, or I could say that Indigenous is the first people of the land, but I, it, it's, 
it's more than that because actually I think you know how can we attest to who was exactly the first people of the land and if we think of the first people of the land then we have to think of the four-legged you know and we have to think of the plants because for me they are they are beings and breathing beings and I today I think indigenous uh are for me are those people who still hold the secret teachings and the wisdoms yeah that definitely here here in Canada when I had the privilege to to be able to be around uh, the indigenous community they hold that there has been wisdom that has been passed down into those communities and they might not necessarily live the wisdom but yet they are the keepers of the wisdom and they remind us that actually there were people on this land before we adulterated it you know before we appropriated it and for me indigenous people teach us how to be custodians of the land if we were to listen to the indigenous uh, people would we be suffering from climate change right now no because the way indigenous people live is very different from the way i live yeah there's such i i am adopted into uh, an indigenous uh, family in lillouet and the way they live just just it's it's like they go out fishing but it's not for them it's for the whole community they go picking mushrooms or berries and, and, you know, fruits and vegetables and jar it, but it's not for them, it's for the whole community. And if I, you know, if I was to eat fish or meat, I would never have to buy it because they, they want to send me home with this fish, this salmon, this meat, whatever, because it's to be shared. It isn't to be, to be kept that you just, you just take what you need and leave the rest. And that is something that we as colonizers, we have got so greedy and we take more than what we need. So what does it mean to be indigenous? I, I, I don't know what it means to be indigenous because as I say, I'm stateless. What I do know is, is that when I stepped off the plane from um, England in Sierra Leone, and people said, welcome back. When I passed security, there was something. And when I saw uh, my people and I saw like, oh my God, that's my body. There was something in that because I just don't see that um, here in, in, in the places that I've lived. And yet they're not in, indigenous, they're Creoles. So, so for me, the, in, the significance of Indigenous for me is to remember the land. That's what Indigenous people teach me, is to remember the land, to remember the four-legged, to remember the plants. That for me is the significance for us, that we are supposed to be custodians of the land. That's the significance for me. Thank you. There's a question here from Marie, who says, why is there little talk about Haiti, how it has been unseen by even African descendants living in the diaspora? 
how it has been vilified or ignored even in spiritual circles, and why, among other religions, Vaudu is hardly even ever listed. Well done. Yeah, thank you. Actually, um, I, uh, if I could put the link, I just uh, co-produced the African Wisdom Summit, and we Haiti was very much featured, as we know, Haiti uh, was the first and only really successful slave revolt that we that we know of. And also knowing that actually Haiti is still being punished for that. So what I would say is most definitely, I have not um, excluded Haiti. So if you just Google African Wisdom Summit, you could actually, um, I, I think now because it's over, you would have to buy um, to, to, to buy those, those, uh, those 34 talks and Haiti is, is one of them looking at the wisdom in the African diaspora. I think that in, if we're talking about Verdun, um, Verdun is that people are very scared of, of what they perceive to be Verdun and in terms of, you know, is it voodoo? Um, is it animal sacrifice? Is it, I mean, that's a game with, um, with Maladoma Same. So I think that that the the West, um, the West is 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 frightened by some of those traditional from some of those traditional religions, and even us as African descent people can also be frightened of some of those traditional religions. So that's what I would say. That definitely, there there things like Vedan and Voodoo has definitely been stigmatized. And what people have done is, I think, what white Westerners have done. It's it's almost like a, what they did to belly dancing, which was a whole, you know, what we know that belly dancing was this beautiful birthing dance. Rakshaki was this beautiful birthing dance, which was performed for women. Men as guests were able to come in and see it. And then what they did was they they extracted certain parts for it, and then made it this 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 sexualized thing. And, and I think, you know, Westerners have done the same. They've taken something from the dome, which is completely out of context and made it this, uh, in inverted commas, what can be seen as a, as a scary, as a scary thing. So that's my response to that. And to say, really check out the African Wisdom Summit, because it is a fantastic conversation that I have with Max Gaston on Haiti. Wonderful. So if people Google African Wisdom Summit, they that'll come up right away, will it? Yes, it, it should do. Yeah. Links there for everyone here live. If you're, if you're watching or listening to the recording, it's African with a K for African, wisdomsummit.com. Hmm. I just want to take a moment in this pause to, to thank Jacob Steele, our, our producer and events curator. He makes all of these events possible and brings in all of our wonderful guests people like Vimala Sara, who's here with us today. So big thanks to Jacob and a big thanks to our, our live audience for making these events so wonderful. We've been, we've been talking to Vimala Sara about her book, which is called African Wisdom, New Voices Talk Black Liberation, Buddhism and Beyond. And we've got a few more minutes uh, and there's a couple more audience questions here. Uh, this one is from Dingani, who says, this is amazing, Miss Vimala Sara. 
as a Zulu ancestor, as a Zulu, ancestors is where I live. I cannot even begin to comment on your reflection on ancestral wisdom. You are a gift to all of us. My question is, is Sankofa similar to decolonization? Yeah, that's a very interesting question and a, 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 a difficult question to, to answer. Um, I've been in spaces with BIPOC people really talking about what is actually decolonization, what, what, what are we actually really decolonizing and actually really trying to move away from that, uh, from that expression of decolonizing and actually just reclaiming what, what is ours. I, I tend to come at it from another perspective of beginning to make things more culturally spe specific to us. I would say that, you know, definitely the word Sankofa is, is an African word. It's a, a word that um, came from the, from Ghana. I think it's the Akan tribe that it came from Ghana. And, you know, it's, it's literal translation. Well, there's so many actually different variations, um, but reminding us it's not taboo to perfect what is at risk of being left behind. And so, in, in a way, I would just say, don't compare, because decolonization is a Western, is a Western concept, and actually Sankofa comes from an African, through an African lens, so, so I, that's what I would say, is not to try and compare, not to try and compare the two, but actually just really see it through the lens of Sankofa, through an, through an African uh, through an African concept rather than through a Western concept. And you can always get hold of me through my website. Which is valeriemason-john.com, right? Yeah. We'll get to one more audience question here. This is from Hoda. And it's a, it's a simple question, but I'm very curious about this too. Hoda says, curious why you spell Africa as Africa with a K. Ah, Africa, Africa with a K, because um, see, in, in traditional African languages, it was a K, and Africa with a C is a westernized spelling. Yeah, so it's reclaiming it. And then you know, there are, of, are debates, it's a political way of reclaiming Africa, but actually in many African languages, we didn't have a C. Um, we had a K, which is why we spell it um, in its more indigenous, in its more indigenous form. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just really want to say that this, this, this book really is, it, it's, a, it's a gift from the contributors it's it's we are future ancestors okay every one of us here is a future ancestor and i have the privilege of of standing on the shoulders of the ancestors that have come before me i get to be able to live as an african descent person in this world with a level of freedom 
but I still don't have all the freedom that I, it's still a human rights issue around the freedom that we as African descent people do not have. And so, you know, this book is, is a legacy. It's, 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 it's something leaving there for, for those who, who, who come after us in, in, in the West, really, because so much has been lost. So much has been lost through the, the Mayafa, through the mass incarceration. We, we still experience a mass incarceration. You, whether you go to Canada, whether you go to the US, whether you go to England, and I'm sure other places in Europe, African descent people are the most incarcerated, whether they be in mental health institutions, whether they be in prison. Even in Canada, if you look at the percentage of African descent people in this country, we are still more incarcerated than Indigenous people. In numbers, there's more Indigenous people incarcerated, but if you look at the percentage of how small the population is here and the percentage, we are still more uh, incarcerated because we're so much more visible. Thank you, Vim Lasara, for this really wonderful book and um, for all the work that you're doing and, and for giving your time uh, to speak with us today. It's much appreciated. Yeah, thank you, Ross. Thank you, Ross. Um, I really enjoyed, enjoyed this conversation. And thank you for all of you who stayed for the conversation. Thank you. Uh, you know, sometimes it's like, oh my God, is there just going to be three people in the audience and you're just doing it for the recording? So thank you. And thank you all for your questions. Apologies that we didn't get to all of your, your questions. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.